Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Eugene Peterson renders it this way. Do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blazed the way, all these veterans cheering us on, it means we'd better get on with it. Strip down, start running, and never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way, the cross, shame, whatever, and now he's there in the place of honor right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again. Item by item, that long litany of hostility that he plowed through, that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. This is the word of the Lord. So running is something that I do, and it's taught me a lot. I run in the rain, hard rain, rain so hard that the UPS driver said, whoa, brother, that's intense. I saw you out there. Are you, what's, what's going on? Run so hard that muscles I didn't know I had hurt in my legs and shins from running in three inches of water, and my shoes weighed more than they normally did. Running in the snow when my forehead is screaming in pain because it doesn't have the covering of beard. And my breath is freezing onto my beard and mustache and becoming a, an array of icicles. But the, by far the worst is running in the heat, the blistering heat. That's why sometimes I've run after midnight. So if you see me running around in the dark in Seaford, no one's chasing me. I've run through my stupid hypoglycemic blood sugar crashes where I feel like I can't go on and every muscle in my body is shaking and I'm thinking, if I pass out, how long will it take for my wife to find out I'm missing and come searching for me? And the reason I run is not because I like running, although I'm beginning to love it. I started when I hated it. Now I'm almost addicted to it. But the reason I run is because I found it to be probably one of the most single, the single most effective tools in God's arsenal for me to fight the chemical imbalance of my body, which makes me experience depression. So I say no to letting the enemy simply steal my life, meaning that enemy, steal my life, while I stand idly by watching passively going, oh, I guess this is just my life. I've run in the mountains of Colorado. I've run on the treadmills of Redding, California. 
what a run outside, but there were, there were forest fires and you couldn't breathe. Running hotel treadmills in Lancaster, the black asphalt of Seaford after midnight, and my favorite place in the whole world to run, the woods. Ah. Oh. Just feel like I'm living out Genesis 2 when I'm out there running in the woods. I've run in circles on the track, which feels a little bit like being a rat in a cage. I hate it. But I run. I run hurt. I run tired. Lately, I've been running with a torn hip flexor muscle. You know, every time you lift this left foot up off the ground, it hurts. Yeah? Anyone? No? Okay. Carrie said I should back off and let it heal. But if I have to choose between searing muscle pain and crippling depression, that's not even a choice. So I run. And you know what's even harder than the running? Putting on my shoes and walking out the door. Making that choice to run is much harder than all the suffering I endure after I've made that choice to run. Once I've made the choice, I'm stupid stubborn. <laughs> I just can't seem to quit something that I've said yes to. It's just the hardest thing for me. The hard part is making that choice to get those shoes on, those silly-looking running shorts on. I experimented with basketball shorts. My wife said they look even worse. Get my pasty legs out there. To me, it's like warm if it's over 40, running with shorts. If it's over 40, it's warm. Today's way hot. I'm, it's gonna, if I run today, it's going to hurt. It's going to be too hot. Okay, moving on. But showing up is what I'm saying. The real battle is whether I'm going to show up, whether you're going to show up. In between you and showing up is the war. It stands in between you and the starting of the thing you're called to. That's the war. That's the real war. Yes, there's a war to endure. Yes, there's a war to not quit. But I'm telling you right now, the way to not quit is to get up every morning and start. And it's that battle you have to win to start each day anew that that's the real battle for your life. That's the real battle for your calling. That's the real battle for you to live the life you were created and called to live. Every single soul God has made has a calling has a unique shape, a unique set of things you were designed to do and to be in the world. And you are irreplaceable. We've never seen one of you before. Only you and God in union, in relationship, can work out for the rest of us what that's supposed to look like. And that thing, if you don't say yes to it and fight down the resistance and win that battle, no one's going to do it for you. No one else is going to do it for you. I'm not even sure anyone else's encouragement can be the deciding factor, although sometimes, if you're close enough, that can be the tipping point. But at the end of the day, it's you alone that have to win this battle. Even though we have a tribe, even though we have a group, even though we have a family, you must win this fight. Because the resistance is against you every day. The resistance is not only against you, it's against non-Christians who still feel their calling, though they don't know how to describe it or define it. The resistance is against all of us. We could identify it and say it's the devil, but I think it's a little more accurate to say it's demonic. 
Because it's the world itself under a system that fights like gravity against your calling, against everyone's calling. So there's the resistance that tries to crush every single one of us from becoming who God created us to be and from doing in the world each day what God made us to do. And then there's the divine help that comes. Ancient people used to see the the man or the woman laboring in dryness of soul at their craft, pushing a rock impossible for them. And eventually, the ancient Romans would have said it this way, the gods had pity and came to help. I don't believe in the gods. I believe in God. But there's something incredibly magnetic. There's something incredibly conductive. There's something that draws like a lightning rod, well-grounded, the power of God about us starting, whether there's inspiration or not, whether there's oil on it or not, whether we feel like it or not. There's something that draws the divine help about putting ourselves in the path and starting anyway, inspiration or not. And if we don't, I mean, look around. You know your own soul. There's a misery that comes. I can't ignore it. There's a candy wrapper right here on the middle of the floor. There's a misery that comes when we resist our calling. The dreams that God put on our heart, they become an ache and a hunger and a dissatisfaction that grinds away at our internal parts when we don't say our yes to it. And if you look around society, you see it. People who are living outside of their divine purpose, they are so unhappy. But we don't all know what that unhappiness is. We don't know what that that gnawing hunger really is. And so we try to fill it. People fill it with all kinds of things. Christians fill it with ministry. People fill it with drug addiction. People fill it with shopaholism. People fill it with career success or sexual exploits or materialism, hobbies, hungry, unsatisfied. People feel it with drama. They'll pick up the phone and talk bad about whoever's ticking them off lately, but that's just a temporary scene in an ongoing movie. The person they're mad at lately or anxious about lately is not actually the source of their unhappiness. It's just the latest target of their unhappiness. We just look around and we see a world, but not just outside. We look inside and we can say that when we're not in the path of our calling, it's painful. And many of us don't know how to beat the resistance, so we settle for coping mechanisms. We settle for the affirmation of our friends or family, try to live someone else's dream to get their approval instead of going deep in here and finding the Lord's through following the path. Also, families are set up. Some families, there's whole systems of multi-generational sabotage to keep anyone from doing any productive work in the kingdom. And by work in the kingdom, I don't mean explicit Christian things. I mean divine things. Right? Whatever's beautiful, good, and true belongs to Jesus. All truth is God's truth. Not everything has to be directly related to getting people to pray the four spiritual laws. Right? Are you with me? If it's God, it's good. If it's true, it's Jesus's. And there's 
kingdom callings and whole family systems in, as a way of keeping anyone else from fulfilling their calling, we sabotage whole family systems. It's like we're get, things are getting too boring around here. We need drama. Someone's got to get like, you know, have an affair or blow something up or get pregnant out of wedlock. Something's got to happen that's dramatic. And by the way, if that's you, we bless you and we love you and there's love for you. And I'm not trying to expose that. I'm just saying some family systems aren't going to be designed to support calling. In fact, the crab that tries to get out of the bucket is the one we all grab and pull down in that system. It's too much drama for anyone to get any work done that they were created to do. And if you're committed to getting your work done in the world, you've got to cut drama out of your life like it's cancer. You might even have to cut dramatic people out of your life like they're cancer. That sounded a little harsh, but it's true. So there's family sabotage, there's internal resistance, it's just... And there's so many different kinds of fear that would be the part of the resistance. Fear, what if they leave me? What if I start to follow this thing and they leave me? What if I try to follow this thing that's in my heart to do for God and what if it doesn't work? What if they reject me? What if I'm wrong? What if I'm, what if I'm totally wrong? And what if it's too late? What if I've waited too late? What if I've wasted too much time, too many years? What if I'm a fraud? What if it's too hard for me and I don't have what it takes? And then there's the greatest fear of all. The most devastatingly crushing fear. What if it works? I mean, if it works, there go all my excuses. At least here. I can make being dissatisfied and talking about it and being accepted by other people my shtick. That can be my thing. It can be my nest. My nest of straw and bunny hair. My comfortable thing that I'm using to hide from my calling can be safer than what if it works? What if it works? What if it works? Then I'd be accountable. Then I'd be responsible. Anyone make, is this making any sense to anyone? So many fears, so many reasons not to show up. But until you show up and have a legitimate failure, you're not even in the game. It's like, come on, get your first failure out of the way. Get your second, third, and fourth, and fifth. get your ten first failures out of the way. There's something so right and so good about literally failing forward. This is what my... First Facebook status in like a year meant last night. And I said, better to fail in the path of calling than be a success at anything else. And then, of course, immediately I got a text from Matt Rowan saying, are you okay? I thought, that's why I don't post. People psychoanalyze everything. What are you going through? Are you all right? I'm writing a sermon. Anyway. Almost all of us fail constantly when we're doing the thing we're called to. It's the only way to get to success. But better to fail in the path of your vocation, doing the thing you were called to do. A failure in your vocation is an act of faithfulness. A success in a life you were not created for 
is an act of infidelity against your own nature and the Lord who made it. Better to be a legitimate failure than an illegitimate success. So every day, we have to win the war of the resistance to show up. And then tomorrow, we have to do it again. And then the next day, we have to do it again. My climbing hero, Alex Honnold, after he was the first man who ever free-soloed El Capitan, I just, I just bought, bought the movie. I, like, as soon as it came out, I bought it because I was just waiting for it to come out. Four hours of climbing with no rope. Just nuts. Just, if you have issues with heights, do it for your own sake so that you can sit there and feel something. Right? Your palms are sweaty and you're like, I don't think, eh, you, I don't think you, no food for me, thanks very much. Can't eat right now. I gotta make sure he doesn't die through force of will. Dude, you already know the ending. I know, I know, it's terrible. But what did he do? The split, like as soon as he got to the top and they high five and he, you know, texts his girlfriend to say, I'm not dead. As soon as he gets to the top, they say, what are you going to do this afternoon, Alex? And he says, I'll probably go work out on my fingerboard. It's this pull-up device where you put two fingers in here or these fingers in there, and it's for rock climbers. And The day of his greatest success, that afternoon he gets back to work because this changes nothing. I'm a climber. <laughs> I don't live to have climbed one time. I live to climb. So what do you do? After your greatest success, you get to work. Just like any other day. That's a warrior's mindset. That when you let up on that, weakness sets in. And momentum starts to fade. Another thing about this is just like, the validation that we seek, that we need the most, comes from doing the work. We don't do the work to be validated by others. The work itself validates that we're in the path. Comes from the pleasure of God in the act of creation. That's where the validation comes. Not how the work is received or rejected. The work will be received and the work will be rejected. But neither of those is the validation. The validation is the act itself with the grace of God on it. In Genesis 2... We see all of our calling, all of our creation, created design, that eternal life is not dying and going to heaven. <laughs> Such a stupid idea. Eternal life is doing God's work in the physical world, partnered well with your spouse and family, and then resting and relating to God intimately in conversation when the day's work is done. I'm, be honest with you, I love church, but I also love when it's over. Because if heaven was an endless song service, that sounds a little more like hell to me. It's more like Genesis 2. It's much more like living normal life. Heaven is much more like living normal life in the path of vocation than a song service or a church service. I think of heaven like this. You wake up, you shower, you put on your shoes, and you get to work beautifying the world. 
bringing order out of the chaos of the raw materials of what is. Learning, creating, relating, and resting. And then looking and saying, ah, it's good. Let's pack it up for today and let's do it again tomorrow. It's a good life. It's a good work with a good God until earth looks like heaven. Heaven on earth, that's our calling. According to the Bible, that's what heaven is. Not us leaving our bodies behind and floating away to a cloud, but Jesus coming down, taking away death, and we live here with work to do. Yeah, but work's a product of the fall. You need to get saved in your brain. There's so many rationalizations that form a part of the resistance, too. Rationalizations like, one of these days. One of these days is the biggest rationalization. One of these days I'm going to get in shape. One of these days I'm going to write that book. One of these days I'm going to take that guitar out from under the bed. One of these days I'm going to crack open that Bible. One of these days I'm going to take that kid fishing. One of these days I'm going to start that resume and look for that job instead of this one I hate. One of these days I'm going to go back to college so I can get in that career I really always wanted to do. One of these days... One of these days is what we tell ourselves because it's easier to lie to ourselves than to tell ourselves the plain truth, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing today, and probably not tomorrow either. That's too hard to hear. Better to soften the blow with a, one of these days, trust me. If we wait till one of these days, we'll be waiting till kingdom come. You know what I'm saying? Anyone? No? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Little? Maybe? We got to start whether it seems like it's the time or not. We got to start whether it seems like a good time or not. We got to start whether it seems convenient or not. We got to start whether it seems like the right season or not. We got to start inspiration or not. Well, that sounds backwards. How can you be charismatic and say start without inspiration? I wouldn't be much of a charismatic for very long if I waited on the inspiration. Good charismatic brings the inspiration by following the path. Very rarely would you start at all if you waited for inspiration. But if you show up and start in the path of vocation, inspiration comes to help. Heaven's aid. Somerset... Uh, Moham, Moham. I don't know his. I don't know how to say his name. He was a. He's a writer. He was asked if do you write on a schedule or do you wait for inspiration to strike? And he said, I only write when inspiration strikes. Fortunately, it strikes every morning at nine o'clock sharp. You hear what he's saying? Inspiration follows me as I do what I'm created to do. One way to put it is when I make biblically informed decisions and surrender my will to the instruction of Jesus, Holy Spirit comes to say, I'm in on this. Jesus told a story about the kingdom being like a groom about to return at any time. And those waiting, some of them were ready and some of them were not. Some of them had their lamps burning with plenty of oil and some were unprepared. And typically, this story has been used to scare people to pray the salvation prayer because Jesus might return at any time in a, in a rage and 
throw everyone to hell quickly if we aren't saved. I don't think that's what it's about. I think this story that Jesus said is, this is what the kingdom is like. Some people are prepared and they don't miss the arrivals of the Lord because they're already prepared, because they're already living alert and awake and aware, because they're up and, and sh- they've shown up. So they, they don't miss his arrival. And some people are asleep. And sometimes we're either one of those, aren't we? When we're at our post laboring, God sees and is moved and it moves his desire, it moves his delight. And he bends, heaven bends to fill and speak and brood over the one who shows up, inspiration or not. Jude reminds us to build ourselves up in our most holy faith and pray in the Spirit. That's fascinating that he doesn't say, when the Holy Spirit comes, make sure you remember to pray. He says, pray so the Holy Spirit will come. Stir yourself up. You put yourself here and bring the Spirit. I like that. That's that's empowering. As we take Godward action, God fills our steps with divine strength, but he won't make the choice for us. And we all know what it feels like to be working on our own, or at least I feel like I know what it feels like to be working on my own. It's tough sledding in the slush, man. But I'd rather be sledding in the slush faithfully failing than on the wrong mountain. Better to fail in the path of your vocation than succeed at any, any, anything else. So how are you supposed to feel when you're in the midst of your calling, but you're not, not succeeding? I think the answer is grateful. Grateful that you're in the right fight. I can't believe I get to do what I was made to do. I can't believe I get to wake up every morning and do what I was created to do. I'm so grateful. Yeah, but this is broken and that's wrong and this isn't working and this is what's set against us. Oh my goodness, I know. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I wouldn't want to be in any other fight than the fight I'm in because I was born for this fight. I'm in the arena. You know how many souls are in the wrong arena? Just, you know, be grateful that you put yourself out there to be spat on and rejected, Apostle Paul. Be grateful, Paul, that you're in prison. Be grateful that they're making a spectacle of, of, of you while others have their face on billboards. And everyone wants their anointing, touch me, touch me. And then Paul shows up and they're like, oh, there's Paul, roll of eyes. Be grateful, Paul, you're in the arena. Be grateful you're in prison. Because you're known to God. You have the pleasure of knowing you're, you're walking in faithfulness to God. In the partnership of God. With the destiny of God. You're doing what you're born to do, Paul. Sleep well in that prison. Meanwhile, divine aid takes these words you've penned and sends them out over the globe for thousands of years to bring life. (laughs) What a beautiful failure. Paul says to Timothy, in season, 
out of season, be about it. In season, out of season, be about it. I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. I don't know what it is for you, but whatever it is, in season and out of season, be about it. Get after it. You can't treat your hobby, you can't treat your calling like it's a hobby and expect it to bring you what it's made to bring you. You're either about it or it's going to gnaw at you. If you're a writer, get writing every day. If you're a builder, get building every day. If you're an intercessor, get praying every day. Now, if you're an intercessor, you know this. What's, what's going to satisfy that gnawing hunger is not talking about praying, listening to sermons about praying, going to conferences about praying. There's only one thing that's going to satisfy this thing. You can be at a prayer meeting if you're an intercessor, but there's not the kind of praying that's coming from in here happening, and you might need to leave to go get it done. You know what I'm talking about. Be about it. Don't talk about it. Get about it. In season and out of season. And for me, here's what it looks like. My goal is to write two crappy pages a day. If I set out to write two good pages a day, I risk failure. But I'm guaranteed to win if I can write two crappy pages a day. I can sleep in peace knowing that was terrible and I did it. It's awesome. I got that from Annie Lamott, who in her book Bird by Bird said, you got to write crappy first drafts or you won't write anything at all. In fact, most things that are amazing now were horrible when they began. It's called editing, folks, and sweat. 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration. You want a different ratio? Sorry. It's not there. In the boardroom, we should say to people, give me your bad ideas. I want your worst ideas. You know why? Because fear of what others will think of us will keep us not saying those good ideas that we're not sure are good ideas. Give me your worst ideas. Why? To break us out of the crushing load of perfectionism that is another form of resistance. Give me your bad ideas. Ed Sheeran says he writes two songs a day. Man, he's been writing songs for, what, a decade or more? Do you know how many songs that is that you've never heard? Why? Because they're not good enough. He says, I have to write the two bad songs every day, and I can't avoid the bad songs to get to the good songs because every song is an expression of what's happening in my soul, and sometimes what's happening in my soul is not a good song. i got to get the bad songs out of my soul to clear my soul away so that I can get the good songs that are beneath it. And you don't ever get to hear those bad songs, and you shouldn't. It's like a rusty water pipe. What's the solution? Run the water. Get the rusty water out to get to the clean water. Instead of feeling bad about the two bad songs that he wrote that day, he feels amazing about it because he knows that those two bad songs are a stepping stone to the good songs. I think the proportion of songs written to songs that make it on the album is something like 1 to 10. 10 to 1, maybe that's an easier way to say it. And you want it that way. Trust us on this, right? My friend uh, Vic Hamilton, Old Testament professor at college, he said, 80% of the research I do when I'm writing a biblical commentary is excluded from what I write. 80% of what I learn. 
about these books of the Bible is excluded from my commentary. 20% is included, and the 80% I exclude greatly enriches the 20% I include. Write your crappy two pages, Tim. I read a beautiful book by Jocko Willink called Discipline Equals Freedom. He's a, I just read the book. It's about how each little victory over your own weakness and procrastination and that resistance, each little victory over that every day builds momentum for you to say yes to that thing you were made to do. So he starts his day with little victories every day. And for him, that means getting up at like four and becoming obscenely muscular, which I have no real desire to do. Uh, (laughs) That's what it looks like for him. For, for me, maybe it looks like sitting down with my Bible and simply reading. Nothing spiritual has to ta- transpire for that to be a success. I simply have to sit down and let my eyes go over the pages and circle things or highlight things or comment on things that stand out to me. But I put myself under no burden of having anything spiritual occur. I've won simply by showing up and letting the Bible talk. Little victories where I act against resistance, where I act against the the, the weight of my own body, my own emotions, my own distractions, the drama that could easily keep me from my path. And then momentum comes. And then God usually comes. One of the Beastie Boys' dads is a playwright, or was a playwright, and uh, his dad's example greatly impacted his son with his Beastie Boys' work ethic. He said, my dad would get up in the morning, shower, have breakfast, put on his suit as though he were going to work at a law firm or at an office full of professionals, and then go into his study and shut the door, sit down at his desk and write for eight hours a day, and no one was allowed to disturb him during that time. That's just so awesome. He could have just worked when inspiration struck. He could have worked in his underwear. He could have worked sitting there with a cup of coffee and a, you know, you know, and a T-shirt with his socks with his feet up, sleep till nine, do what, you know, he could have. He was his own boss. Would that have affected the work? It would have if it affected his mindset. Something about getting up early, taking his shower, putting on his suit, come on, with his shoes tied. His face is washed. His teeth are brushed. He has shaved. And he sits down all by himself with no one else around. And he puts his pen to the page and writes music. Until that, until that clock says, you're free to go now. Is it good? I doubt it's good most days. But when the, when the, but when the master comes, his lamps were trimmed and burning. When the inspiration strikes... He was there, or maybe more accurately, he drew the master day after day to where he was. Rob Bell wrote a little book called Drops Like Stars, and in the book he had this little story about two groups being given an assignment, all given lumps of clay and all told to make clay bowls. One group was told, you have an hour, make one perfect clay bowl. The other group was told, you have an hour, make a bunch of clay bowls. After one hour, the group that was told to make a perfect clay bowl made a rather shoddy specimen of clay. The group that was told, make a bunch of bowls, the last four or so were far superior to the one that was told, make a perfect bowl. 
I'm not going to explain. You're smart. Ten thousand hour rule. Malcolm Gladwell is famous for a lot of things. One of the things he made famous was the 10,000-hour rule, which states that one of the main determining factors in bringing excellence to any area or craft is that you have put in your 10,000 hours of work, of sweat. It's amazing, after you've put in your 10,000 hours, how people claim you're talented. Really? Is that what happened? Kobe Bryant was called the Black Mamba. And there's something called the Mamba mentality. There's a story that goes, all of his coaches and fellow workers, they still talk about him as an extreme example of discipline. First one to practice, last one out, working harder than everyone. And when he's by himself working, he wasn't just shooting shots. He wasn't saying, well, I'll get 100 free throws in. He was turning and spinning. He was anticipating the defender. He was trying the same shot three ways, and if his defender does this, then he is going to do this, but if he posts up this way, then he's going to spin this way, and he's going to do a fadeaway jumper that way. He's going to do a head... He's breaking a sweat all by himself. So I think the story was Tracy McGrady showed up at the Staples Center, and because he was an away team coming to play the Lakers. And so Tracy McGrady comes in. I'm going to get an early practice in. He shows up, and no one's even in there. The lights aren't even fully on yet. And Kobe's in there by himself practicing. Full sweat. I mean, hard practicing. Tracy goes into the gym, works out, comes out. Kobe's still out there shooting. After that, then he had team practice. And then after that, they had the game that night. And Kobe put up like 50 points in that game. And after the game, he went to Kobe, and he's like, I don't understand. How are you... Do you do that all the time? And he said, no. I saw you come in, and I needed you to see me there when you left so you'd know. Whatever you're going to put in, I'm putting in more. I want it more than you. Oh, the Mamba mentality. Love that guy. I'm going to include a link in the notes so you can read just tons of quotes about him. Judah Smith we're almost done. Judah Smith's dad was always on his knee, knees beside his bed. When Judah was a little boy, his dad would take him around on these preaching tours. And every morning, Judah's dad would get up, and he would get on his knees beside the bed, and he'd close his eyes. And for a half hour, he wouldn't move. I mean, his lips would move. But I'm saying he stayed here. And Judah was like a little kid, and he's like, because he made him. He's like, Judah, get here. We're going to pray. And Judah's there going, oh, I don't know what's going on, but this is the worst. Is something supposed to be happening? Oh, so he'd say his prayers, but he couldn't. I mean, he'd just look at his dad had something else going on. His dad had a track record with God. There was something different going on inside Judah's dad than inside Judah. Then at the end, his dad would finally get up off the ground, and he'd always make him do it with him. Then they'd show up at the church, and Judah's dad would say, Judah, if you're going to share testimony tonight, I need to know that you've, you've had your time with God today. Did you have your time with God? And he's like, Dad, I always share the same exact testimony every church we go to. I've done this a hundred times. What is the big deal with whether I've had my time with God? And he goes, just answer the question, Judah. Is your soul in a good place and ready? And he's like, yeah, I had my time with God. Dang. And that was as a little kid. Now, as an adult, do you understand the impact on Judah's present life, his dad's example set for him? I, that, that story blows my mind. I'm, again, I'm not going to explain that either. 
story blows my mind. All right, conclusions. So this week, just as usual, I did my thing, you know. I made pages of handwritten notes on online paper with my fountain pen and my inkwell. Yes, I love those two items. Dipping my fountain pen in my inkwell, unlined paper, and I make my pages of notes. It doesn't seem to count for some reason. It's easy for me to brainstorm. Ideas come in any order that they come, and I don't have to worry about whether they're right or wrong. They may not make it into the sermon. It's me collecting my raw materials as though I have just ordered large quantities of items from Lowe's, and the people are beep, beep, backing into the yard and dumping them, and now I've got trusses, and I've got all sorts of piles of things, and I'm going, this is going to be a house somehow. I just know it, but it isn't one right now. And then I read an excellent book by Stephen Pressfield called The War of Art, which I forced myself to not leave the orange chair until it was done. And then Saturday arrived, and nothing had been typed. And I said to myself, do I have to really, though? Isn't it all in here? Does it have to get to the page? But I made myself sit down, even though I didn't want to. And something special happened. When I started typing, within minutes, I found myself completely engaged in the state of flow that we've been talking about in this series that athletes get into and artists get into. That state of flow when time fades away and space fades away and you're so engrossed in the work that it's almost like your hands are just trying to keep up and the muse or the Lord or however you want to say it is slowing down just enough so that you don't lose her but she actually wants to go faster, and she'd prefer if you'd keep up. Thank you very much. And my wife went in to say something, and I said, ah, not now, without breaking my focus on the page and not stopping the typing. And she understands. And then she said, I actually wasn't talking to you. And I was like, good. And then I keep, go- I keep going. I said, and shut my door on your way out. Because I cannot afford to have anything break this. There's something magical happening here. And then I took a break and went on a run. And on the mid- in the middle of my run, I was realizing if I can, like, I don't, like, man, if I can pay the bills and do this every day, it's like no matter the crap that happens to me in my life, I'm okay. That weird? And then I thought, man, do people know this? Do they know this pleasure? Do they know this pleasure? Because this is not an athlete in the zone. This is not a- an artist saying this is fun this is, this is different. This is the presence of God drops in on me and I feel his pleasure wash over me with my pleasure and I type a line and I go, oh, that's good, Lord. And he's like, I know, that's good. And I'm like, is this normal? I don't even know. I don't even care. I just know it's my call. And I don't know what your call is. I don't know. But I know you have to say yes to it. I know that it's between you and God. I mean, maybe for you, your call is to prioritize being a mom. Or maybe your call is to start a new business. Or maybe your call is to prioritize working on that part of the business that your success caused you to have less time to do. I don't know. Maybe you're called to serve the homeless. Or maybe you're called to work in counseling others to emotional health. Or maybe you're called to teach. Or maybe you're called to paint or web design. I don't know. Maybe you're called to farm or build houses. I have no idea what you're called to do. Maybe you're called to be a champion of a particular cause or mission field or justice issue. I mean, the kingdom is huge. The kingdom is broad and deep. 
And we've never seen whatever you are before, ever. Because you're one of a kind. So I don't know. But your soul is issuing a call. And whatever it is, you have to show up and start. So I feel like some of us today are like Abraham before he was Abraham, when he was Abram. I feel like some of us are Abram. We're hearing the call to leave our land, what's familiar, our community, our father's house, and go to a land he will show us. And you're beginning to hear that call, but you've not yet fully made up your mind to follow it yet. And others of you are on the path. You're crystal clear about whether God has spoken. And this sermon's just cheering you on to keep showing up. And some of you are very clear about what the Lord's spoken. And you know you're not showing up. And you're miserable. And in your misery, you've turned to destructive behaviors. So, this might seem like an abrupt ending. But I'm just begging you to show up. I'm just begging you to start today. And then start again tomorrow. Pay the cost. Some people say if it's not broke, don't break it. I totally disagree. If it's broke, break it. If it's not broke, break it. Find a better way. Find a better way. Show up. Show up. I'm begging you as your pastor, please show up. The world needs you. The kingdom needs you. Your own soul needs you to show up. Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost. I say more, Father, more. In Jesus' name, we, we open ourselves. We open ourselves to face both what you're saying, what you're calling to us, pray that whatever you have spoken in this time would stick and anything that I said that was unnecessary or a distraction that you would just simply delete it from their record. I pray Holy Spirit this week, all week, we would be hearing your call to show up, show up.